All right, everybody, welcome to Remnant. How are we doing? Excellent. Uh, my name is Frank, and I'm one of the pastors. I'm really glad you're here. If you're a guest, I would love to meet you later. Um, we've been in this series looking at the revelation of Jesus Christ, and it's basically Jesus said, look, I want you to know what's going to happen. I don't want you to be caught off guard, um, but I'm not going to tell you straight out. I want you to understand my word. And so we've been studying it and looking at the signs of the times and I wanted to just say to Lamar's comment about worshiping in heaven, I'm assuming that our new glorified body comes with a new glorified voice. Um, I'm just guessing, you know, if, if you're going to, if you're going to praise God in heaven and blend in with angels, you, let's just pray that we get a different voice. That's, I think, the important thing. Speaking of musical talent, it was 1974, summer. Atwell Junior High School in Dallas, Texas, home of the mighty Atwell Archers. Yeah, all right. I found myself clearly against my will in the trumpet and horn section, and of all places, the junior high school band. I knew I was out of place. I knew I didn't believe there. You see, I was a football player. The, the only reason I thought the band existed is because we had to go to the bathroom at halftime. Other than that, I didn't see any reason for it. Sorry, band people. But I came from a very musical family. My mom was an opera singer. and There was this tradition of excellence in our family when it came to music. And my, my brother was first chair in the clarinet. I didn't even know what that meant. I just thought you sat where you wanted to. <laughs> My sister was all city, all state, all country in not one, but five different instruments. And yet I was clearly a mutant. I failed the recorder in third grade. The recorder, you know, the little, they send, everybody can do that. I can't do that. Third grade teacher finally says, why don't you just help me make copies of the music? I was dismissed with a mercy clause during my first piano lesson. Fortunately, my piano teacher recognized my lack of talent and lack of interest and talked my parents out of it. Soon after that, I failed guitar pretty readily. And, of course, I failed choir without too much difficulty. Yet there I was the first day of summer band camp, sitting in the trumpet section, holding, of all things, a trombone. I might have been a musical mutant, but, but I was pretty smart, or, or at least I thought I was. Mom and Dad made me go to music camp. They told me I could pick whatever instrument I wanted. So I told the band director I could play a trombone. I figured I'd just look at the guy next to me and do whatever he did. I mean, how hard can this be? He's right there, right? There's no other instrument other than maybe a violin where you can watch it. I was like, no, I can't do a violin, but a trombone, I'll do the trombone. I thought, you know what, I'll just fake it. I'll fake it by watching the guy next to me. And for a little while, it sort of worked. I carried the trombone around all day, acted like I was a trombone player, telling everybody I could play the trombone. I began to even look like maybe I could be part of the band. I was hoping the girls would think it was kind of cool that the jock had a musical side. For a little while, it almost worked. But then the time came when the trumpet blew. I won't bore you with the detail of my epic band failure, 
But let's just say when the trumpet blew, everybody knew I wasn't ready. The sound of the trumpet changed everything. What I had been hiding was now painfully obvious. And when the trumpet sounded, my charade ended. One day in the future, there will be many people who know exactly that feeling when the trumpet blows. Unfortunately, they're going to realize that this charade they've been having with God is going to end too. It's the sound of the trumpet that's going to wake them up and make them realize that they've been faking it just like I was. Maybe attending church, maybe serving in different ministries, maybe just ignoring God, maybe doing some other kind of religious thing. It doesn't matter when the trumpet blows, there's instant clarity, according to God. They, like me, have been hanging around trying to look like those around them, claiming to be something that they're not. And when the trumpet blows, they're going to be left to face the music, just like I was. God told us there's a day coming when we need to be ready for the sound of a trumpet. Trumpets to the Jewish people are like air raid sirens are to us. The blowing of the shofar, the the trumpet in the temple, it occurred at various times for various reasons, but it always meant something important. Lamar, why don't you let us remind us of what that sounds like? Here it goes. Stand back. I was just going to randomly blow this and look to the sky, but I thought that might freak y'all out. Okay, so now you know. The trumpet. It was a call to assembly. It could be a command for Israel to move out. It could be a call to war. It could be preparation for an announcement. It could be a warning of a judgment to come. It could be a call to celebrate and to worship. It was used to announce the arrival of the wedding party. That's how the town knew that the father had given permission. Whenever the trumpet blows, God's people are to stop and take notice. Jewish author Ari Goldman in his book, Being Jewish, says, The sound of the shofar, the ram's horn, is a kind of spiritual alarm clock for the soul. Trumpets often blew to wake up those spirits in Jerusalem. Paul associated that trumpet sound with the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. He told the Corinthians, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Paul said at the sound of the trumpet, at the last trumpet, we'll be raptured. There's been a lot of discussion about what that word last means before last trumpet. Books have been written on it. 
The Greek word eschatos could mean either lost in a point or last in a point of time or last in a point of sequence. There's no doubt that God has told us through his scriptures that he wants us to be encouraged and instructed by the scriptures that are to come. Obviously, if this trumpet is the last trumpet, the last ever heard, then that is significant for us because it makes us wonder, okay, then when's the rapture going to be? It's important to understand because some people say, well, that trumpet must be the seventh trumpet in the mid-tribulation. It must be the last of the seven trumpets. And we've talked about it before. We're going to go into it in great detail that there are seal judgments and trumpet judgments and bowl judgments. And at the middle of the tribulation, in the very middle, there are seven trumpets that blow. And a lot of people say, well, that's the last trumpet. Therefore, we'll be raptured in the middle of tribulation. Okay? obviously a big deal. And anytime you're looking at Scripture and you're trying to understand something particularly as important as what the word last trumpet means, you have to look both at the context and you have to look at other Scripture as well that, that supports that. So first, let's think about the context. I'm going to blow this out a little bit because this is really important for us. I mean, if the trumpet is the seventh trumpet and it's in the middle of tribulation, then we've got a lot of things happening before the, before the rapture and we can all relax. It's an important thought. It's interesting that Paul refers to the last trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15, and in the immediate chapter before it, the context of the chapter before it in chapter 14, he talks about the blowing of a trumpet and refers to it as a military trumpet. In light of that, it would appear that Paul has military trumpets in his mind as he's telling people what to watch for. So what's the significance of that? Well, when you read about the Roman army and you read about many Greek armies and even the Jewish army back in biblical times, when they went to war, they had a last trumpet that would be blown that would tell the fighting men, your time of fighting is over. It's time for you to go home and rest. And the last trumpet to many people in the first century from a military standpoint meant the battle's over. It's time to go home. Throughout Scripture, trumpets were used as signals to gather people, to set armies on the move, and in the worship of God. In the Old Testament, Numbers 10, Moses said this, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Make two silver trumpets of hammered work, you will make them, and you will use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking camp. And when both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the entrance of the tent of meeting. But if they blow only one, then the chiefs and head of the tribes of Israel will gather themselves to you. The first trumpet blast calls the leaders together. A continual trumpet blast was an alarm. A series of trumpet blasts was a signal for everybody to get ready to move out on their journey. And when the last trumpet went off, they were told to begin to move. Similarly, in Corinthians 15.23, we see different orders or ranks in the resurrection. Jesus being first. Those who are dead, next. Those who are alive, next. By analogy, the scriptures teach today that Christians are involved in a spiritual war in which our lives are involved in the battle. And many believe the last trumpet is God's call to us to let us know the battle's over. The battle's done. It's time to go home. 
It's highly likely that a first century Jewish audience, when they heard the term last trumpet, would have registered it far more with a military call that the, the battle is over and it's time to go home than a series of trumpets they haven't even been taught about yet. And yet Paul tells them to be encouraged with these words. They didn't know Revelation. They didn't know that there were seven trumpets that were going to blow. They had no idea that was going to happen. All they knew was a last trumpet would sound and we would be raptured. In addition to the context of the first century, we need to look at other scriptures. Paul tells the Thessalonians that the trumpet will sound, the dead will rise first, and then living believers will rise. He says, we'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And the last trumpet will sound and we will rise and we'll all be changed. In addition, he told the Corinthians the same thing. And in both passages, he's talking about the same event. When he mentions the trumpet blowing, it's immediately followed by instructions or awareness of the raptures here. Yet when we look in Revelation 11 at the trumpet that happens at the mid-tribulation, it's not associated with anything. It's not associated with the rapture. It's not associated with, in a twinkling of an eye, we'll be changed. Here's what it says. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. Now, many say that that last trumpet must be the seventh trumpet, mid-tribulation. And for that reason, the rapture must be mid-tribulation. But both 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians were written long before Revelation was ever written. Paul's readers had no knowledge of seven trumpets of the Revelation. He intended for them to understand what he was talking about. So we need to look elsewhere for clarification to understand. Maybe Paul was speaking prophetically to those who would come later, but he closed that they should encourage one another with these words. It seems like this message was for those who were in that audience at that time, first and foremost, before it was for us to interpret in light of Revelation. It's unusual that Paul would have used the term last trumpet for a trumpet they'd never heard of. In fact, many people argue that that seventh trumpet is the last trumpet on earth. It's not. The Bible's very clear. Jesus said when he comes back the second time, it'll be with the trumpet. So even the mid-tribulation seventh trumpet's not the last trumpet. There's another one that comes when Jesus returns. And he said it in Matthew, immediately after the tribulation, after the tribulation... The sky will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Thus the seventh trumpet at mid-tribulation is not even the last trumpet. In fact, we know that trumpets are going to be blown into the millennial kingdom. If you look at the prophet Zechariah talking about the kingdom that we'd be living in, the millennial kingdom after Jesus returns, he says, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. The feast of booths is clarified by a trumpet call. 
So trumpets are going to be blown into the millennium. They're blown throughout the tribulation. They're blown at the end of tribulation. So the question is, what does the last trumpet mean? I think it's a a military call. I think it's time to go home. I think it's exactly what we think it means. I think it's their equivalent of the fat lady singing. I think it's God saying it's time to go home. The war's over. Key thing to remember, though, is to be ready. Doesn't matter when the trumpet blows. The key is that you're ready when the trumpet sounds. You're not caught at band camp faking it. So, why is there so much interest in a trumpet blowing anyway? Well, the reason is the blowing of a trumpet correlates with a very special day on the Jewish calendar. A very special day every year. A day that God said was holy and unique and set apart for Him. It is His day, and it's called the Feast of Trumpets. It's one of the seven annual feasts, appointed times, God said, that God commanded the Jewish people to observe during the year. So seven times a year, God in his scriptures told the Jewish people, these are my appointed days. They're not your days. They're not your special days. They're mine. On these days, just like the Sabbath every week, I want you to stop what you're doing and focus on me. Leviticus 23.1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them. Okay, so this is addressed to Jewish audience. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. What he says, he says, look, notice these are my days. I'm the one that set them up. You didn't think of it. I did. They're ordained by God. They're not man's idea. God made them. God placed them. God put them in order. God told them exactly what to do on those days, which animals to sacrifice, what to do at the temple, whether they were required to come to the temple or whether they could stay home. God ordained every single little detail of these seven days. And they were given to the nation of Israel. Nothing about them is random. God used the feasts just like he used everything else to point to the Messiah. I talk all the time about everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. Every story, everything points to Jesus. It is no different with the seven appointed feasts. From the moment God decided that these feasts were going to be celebrated by the Jewish people was showing them in advance a foreshadowing of the Messiah to come. Seven feasts to meet with God. And God says these days are set apart for holy purposes. I'm going to do things on this day that are holy, that are mine, that are designed for me. Colossians 2.16, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you on the question of food or drink or with regard to a festival, a new moon or a Sabbath. Okay, festival being the holidays. They are a shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. What he's saying is, look, these feasts are dress rehearsals. 
They're dress rehearsals for events that are going to happen in the life of the Messiah. You may not understand them now, but when the Messiah comes, you'll understand why we've been celebrating these feasts year after year after year, because you will see the Messiah in these feasts. What things? Well, it turns out that each feast foreshadows a key moment in the life of Jesus. There are four spring feasts and three fall feasts. The spring feasts are are tied to planting, gardening, throwing seeds, hoping to get ready for the growing season. And the fall feasts are tied to the harvest of that effort. All seven feasts point to the Messiah, and each feast, each special holy day, has prophetic significance. In other words, each feast points to a specific thing that will happen in the life of the Messiah. The interesting thing is that the major events of Jesus' life occurred during feasts. I mean, when you read the Bible, it's easy to miss it. But often the things Jesus is doing, the big events of his life, the milestones, if you will, are occurring on one of the high holy days. In fact, in his first coming, the four feasts of planting and gardening and growing and nurturing and watering were all fulfilling in his first time to earth. Let's look at the spring feasts. The first feast is Passover. This is a pilgrimage feast for the Jewish people. They were required to leave wherever they were and go to Jerusalem. Passover, the the pilgrimage feast is actually the feast of first fruits, but they're all in one week. So everybody heads to Jerusalem. The entire country stops and goes to the temple for God's appointed day. First feast is Passover. It's to remember that when they were in Egypt and they they had to leave and the, the death angel was passing over, that a lamb was placed, the blood of a lamb that had been sacrificed for them was placed over the door so that the angel of death would pass over. That first appointed feast was God saying, don't forget what happened with the blood of the lamb. Don't forget that those who trusted in the blood of the lamb and did what God told them to do with the blood of the lamb were spared death. Every year, set aside a day and remember Passover. Just as the lamb was sacrificed that night to save the people, the blood of the lamb of God was sacrificed on what day? Passover. Passover had been telling Jewish people for years that the blood of the lamb would cover them and and death would pass over. And then the lamb of God shows up on Passover and gets crucified. At the same time, the lambs are being slaughtered in the temple. On the same day, at the same time, The Lamb of God is pouring out His blood so that those who do what God says and trust in His sacrifice will have the death angel pass over them as well. The Passover pointed to the Messiah who was to come who would fulfill the Passover prophecy of being the Lamb of God. 
It's no coincidence at all that Jesus was crucified during the Passover celebration at a time when lambs were being sacrificed in the temple. Those who trust in his blood will be saved. Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of the first feast, Passover, when he died on the cross. The second appointed feast is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It comes immediately after Passover. It's the very next day, or at least over the weekend. The feast speaks of sanctification, which means basically being pure and holy. It's to remind people that God instructed them to take bread with them that would not decay. The feast of unleavened bread. If you remember the story, as they left Israel, they left with unleavened bread because they didn't want bread that would decay. The feast of unleavened bread starts the day after Passover. It lasts for seven days. These two feasts are tied together. And often the term Passover and feast of unleavened bread are often used interchangeably because it's basically a week-long process. During the seven days following Passover, the Jewish people are to avoid any kind of leaven, any kind of yeast, anything that would cause decay. They're to examine their home, their businesses, and most importantly, their lives. And any form of leaven had to be removed. God took leaven very seriously. He gave them seven days to make sure they get rid of all of it. Exodus twelve nineteen. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. God is serious about this one. In Hebrew, leaven is known as hamez, which means sour. It's usually in yeast or, bo- or baking powder. It produces fermentation and it sours the dough. Tiny gas bubbles get in the dough. You can't really see it on the outside initially. It starts from within and it starts to ruin whatever's there from within. Just a little bit of leaven can ruin the whole thing. No matter how small the amount, no matter how hidden, no matter how discreet, you can't eat it, can't touch it, can't look at it. All leaven has to be discovered and purged. And failure to do so was a serious breach of God's law. God is very serious about leaven. Because in Scripture, sin is portrayed as leaven. It's during the feast of unleavened bread that Jesus is in the tomb. His sacrifice has been completed. His life is being examined by the Father for any evidence of sin, any evidence of leaven. Basically, had Jesus had a hidden sin that he didn't tell anybody about, the Father would have discovered it and he wouldn't have been resurrected. He couldn't have been the perfect sacrifice. So Jesus goes into the tomb, the bread of life. He is in the tomb, and during that time, he's being examined for any evidence of leaven. Jesus was pure, sinless, without leaven, and was sacrificed. He was the Lamb of God, the bread of life, buried in a tomb. Something happened to him in the tomb that's never happened to anyone else. 
something else we celebrate during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. His body did not decay. There was no breakdown of his body during the time that he's in the tomb. Psalm 16, 9. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. The third feast immediately following the Feast of Unleavened Bread is called the Feast of First Fruits. The feast celebrates the first of the harvest. The barley harvest comes in first. There are three main harvests during the year for Jewish people, barley, wheat, and then olives and grapes. With each of those harvests, the first fruit, the first part of that harvest is to be taken to the temple and offered to God. So the three harvest feasts require that people go to the temple, give God the very best of what they've harvested. Feast of first fruits is the barley harvest. Feast of Pentecost, we'll talk about in a minute, is the wheat harvest. And the Feast of Tabernacles is the olive and grape harvest. So during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's time for everybody to bring to God the first part of the harvest. 1 Corinthians 15.20 But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as man came death, but by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as we in Adam all died, so in Christ we will all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruit, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Want to guess on which day Jesus resurrected from the dead? Feast of first fruits. Jesus comes out of the tomb on the day of first fruits. He is the first fruit of those who will be resurrected. Nothing that happened in Jesus' life is accidental. He's crucified on the Passover. He's in the feast. He's in the unleavened bread. And then he rises on the day of first fruits. Seems like a pattern starting to develop here. And Jesus told us that the promise that he gives to us would be sealed by God himself. What's the seal that promises us what God has promised to us? It leads us to the next feast. The next key moment in the life of Christ. The fourth feast is the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. It's the second pilgrimage feast. This is a day when all Jewish people over all Jerusalem had to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate the wheat harvest and to give God their first fruit offering. It occurs 50 days after Passover, therefore it is called Pentecost. Five, Pentecost. This is the day when God came down to Mount Sinai and gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments. And years later, this is the day they were in Jerusalem celebrating this day when the Holy Spirit fell on the believers. The first fruit celebrated the resurrection of Christ and his new spiritual being. Pentecost celebrates the fact that his children have been resurrected and spiritually reborn and now possess the Holy Spirit of God. It's the celebration of another harvest, us, and the first fruit of millions to come later. God harvested the hearts of his people so that they could harvest the souls of the world. Jews celebrated a joyous harvest with the Feast of Weeks. 
And the church celebrated a newborn state of spiritual being and spiritual souls as the Holy Spirit fell during that feast at Pentecost. These four feasts were literally fulfilled by Jesus during his first trip to earth. They're prophetically completed. The spring planting season is done. And we are now spiritually waiting for the harvest of that effort. We are living in the time between the giving of the Holy Spirit and the promise of the soul harvest to come and the realization of that harvest. We're living in a time between the spring feasts of planting and the fall feasts of the harvest. In a sense, we're in the dry, hot summer. Each of the spring feasts foreshadowed moments in the life of Jesus. And those moments happened on the exact day of those feasts. Each feast symbolic of something in his life. These feasts predict events that have yet to unfold. The first four feasts were fulfilled literally and right on schedule in connection with his first coming. Thus, it's very likely that the last three feasts will also occur, during the last three feasts, will occur specific moments in Jesus' life on schedule and in connection with what scriptures have promised. The spring feasts had to do with Jesus' first coming. The fall feasts will have to do with his return at his second coming. The feasts are foreshadowing of real events. Just like those years ago celebrated Passover, not realizing that the Messiah would come one day and they would have a very real Passover as the blood of the Lamb of God is shed. So these feasts prepare us for days to come in the future. Unleavened bread, Jesus would not decay in the tomb. He would be found without leaven, without sin. First fruits, Jesus would rise to show us what's to happen with the rest of the harvest. And Pentecost, the day the Holy Spirit came down and empowered us to live spiritual lives. And it's interesting that the next three feasts have not yet been fulfilled. The feasts of the harvest are important prophetically for us. So obviously if we study these three feasts, we can begin to learn something about our future. So what are the fall feasts going to point to in Jesus' life? His second coming. And let me share with you the timing of the fall feasts. There are three of them, and they come in fairly rapid succession every fall. They're all tied to one another, and they occur in order as God ordained them. The first one that I want to talk about tonight, and the main one I want to talk about is called, and the very first one is called Feast of Trumpets. The summer months without feasts prophetically represents God turning away from the Jewish nation for a while. But at some point, after his attention has been turned to the Gentiles, God will turn back to the Jewish people. For three long summer months, there are no feasts. It corresponds to what many call the time of the Gentiles, which is what we're living in spiritually. It's a time when God is primarily calling Gentiles into his kingdom. And when the harvest of Gentiles is complete, God will turn his attention back to the Jewish people. It's clear in scripture. Our era ends, and on a future day, 
the day foretold by the fall feasts, the trumpet will sound. The Gentile period will close. And the trumpet will be a wake-up call to the Jewish people that they need to get ready. It's the appointed time of the fall feast. The purpose of the fall feast of trumpets is simply to announce in advance to Jewish people that they need to get ready because the judgment is coming in 10 days. That's what it means. You see, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, is the holiest day on the Jewish calendar. It occurs on the 10th day of the 7th month of the year. It is a time when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, take the blood of the sacrificed animals, and, and try to appease God or, or, or cover their sins with the blood of the sacrificed animal. He would go into the Holy of Holies, the center part of the temple. He could only go in there one day a year, and it was ordained on God's appointed time that he would go on the Day of Atonement. It occurs on the 10th day of the 7th month of the Jewish calendar. Okay, now that's easy for us. It's the second fall feast. Okay, so there's a, whole, a high holy day on the 10th day. How do you know which day is the 10th day? We have calendars. We have star programs we looked at last week. They didn't have that. Somebody had to decide when the first day of the month was so they would know when the 10th day is. Right? God has been silent throughout the entire summer. But the seventh month is coming. Is it tonight or is it tomorrow night? We don't know. It could be either. How do they decide? Well, the Jewish priest at Jerusalem, when he saw the first sliver of the moon. Okay, remember the moon is blacked out. The first sliver of the moon means it's a new moon. When he saw the first sliver of the moon, he would blow the shofar to let people know that they have 10 days to examine themselves before the high holy day. And it starts right now. Now, the other thing that's interesting about this day is every other day, you know when it is. This was called the day no one knows because it depends on when they blow the trumpet. The trumpet, the, the moon had to be visible from Jerusalem. They did not want to make a mistake, particularly make a mistake and make it too early. Because in their opinion, then you had one less day to turn back to God. So they would be late rather than early. And if it was cloudy or they couldn't see the moon, they would hold off and, and try to call it the next day. Because clearly by the next day, it surely was there. So the Feast of Trumpets is basically a trumpet call saying the new month has started. And what happened is the priest would blow the trumpet and that trumpet would get repeated all over Israel to all the outside areas so everybody would know we got 10 days. So 10 days from today is a high holy day, a Sabbath day. Now here's what's interesting. That day they blow the trumpet is instantly a holy day, a Sabbath it's the only unannounced Sabbath on their calendar. As soon as that trumpet blows, they are to stop what they're doing. It's like putting Sunday in the middle of the week all of a sudden. Blow the trumpet, don't do anything. It's a holy day. And they took their holy days very seriously. It is the only holiday, the only holy appointed day that doesn't have a preparation day or a day where you can get ready for it because you don't know when it is. 
In fact, they would often call this particular feast, the Feast of Trumpets, the feast that nobody really knows the day. It was a Sabbath, no preparation. They didn't know which day the actual day would be, but they knew the season. They knew it was coming. They knew they were supposed to be ready either way. They had to prepare in advance. And then one day, the rabbi would blow the trumpet. And they would know. So when you think of the Feast of Trumpets, think of light coming into darkness. Expected, but the exact time's not certain. No preparation day, so you had to stay ready. You had to be ready for it. It could blow at any time. You knew the season, but you didn't know the actual day. There are two feasts tied together. The Feast of Trumpets is a warning to people to reflect on and think about the judgment, the the time when their sins are going to have to be atoned for in ten days. They are to solemnly process with God. It is a wake-up call every year. Because they believe it's during those ten days that their name is written in the book of life. And if their name is not in the book of life that year and they die, they will not be in heaven. So they do a lot of things during those ten days to try to make themselves look more presentable. To try to to make themselves look different. It's a time of self-reflection. So when it comes to the Feast of Trumpets... Many people have looked at this feast and says, wow, it's starting to sound a lot like the rapture. It's a day we can't prepare for. A day we don't know. It's the day no one's really sure of. Trumpet blast is what tells everybody. And, most importantly, that trumpet blast is supposed to be a wake-up call to the Jewish people. Well, wait a minute. Think about that for a minute. What do you think the rapture is going to do for Jewish people? Have you ever thought about that? Talk about a wake-up call. People who said Jesus was the Messiah is gone. They're not here. The rapture in many ways is a wake-up call to Jewish people, and it occurs at the same time God says, okay, the Gentile period is over, and I'm turning my attention to the Jewish people. can't prepare for it. It's when the priest says it's time. They blow a trumpet. And while no one knows the exact day, Paul tells us that the day of the Lord should not surprise us. Every event in Jesus' life has occurred on a feast. And I do believe that the rapture of the church is in some way tied to the Feast of Trumpets. Not because a trumpet sounds... And not just because each feast is associated with a prophetic event. I think there's something much deeper going on here because the Feast of Trumpets is there to signal a warning to the Jewish people to examine themselves and reconsider how they want their sins covered in ten days. And I believe the disappearance of Gentiles and Jewish people who believed in the Messiah will be a definite wake-up call for those who are Jewish and who are looking for signs of the end times. The sixth feast is the one we just talked about. It's the Day of Atonement. It occurs ten days after the Feast of Trumpets. It's the holiest day of the year. It's the day when the high priest would carry the blood of the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, and the Jewish people would trust that blood to cover them and their sins. 
This day foreshadows a day in the future that the Bible tells us when the Jewish people will atone for their sins, not with the covering blood of an animal, but with the blood of Jesus Christ. That the Jewish people will turn back to Jesus and they will trust Him as their Savior and their Messiah. It's a day when the covenant that we talked about is finally fulfilled with the Jewish people. Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. On a day in the future, the Holy One, Jesus, will restore the holy people of God, Israel. And the Jewish nation will return to Jesus. And I believe that will occur during the sixth feast of year. The seventh feast and the last feast is called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It is a major party. It's a major blowout, a huge celebration. It is in sharp contrast to the solemnness of the Day of Atonement. It's a day when everyone comes. It's the celebration of the grape harvest. So you can just figure out what they're drinking. It is a huge celebration. They come to Jerusalem from all over. They can't stay in hotels because there's just not enough places. So they stay in what they call tents or booths. It's like a huge camp out combined with a massive tailgating party. And all of it is to celebrate the harvest and the fact that they're all back together again. And that God provided for them and kept his promises for them. It's a week-long celebration. It's also a celebration for the Jewish people that their name is in the book of life. And that because they trusted the blood on the high holy day, they're in a good standing with God. By the time this feast comes, the harvest is done, the work is completed, and it's time to sit back and celebrate. It's also called the Feast of the Ingathering. It's observed after all the crops are harvested and gathered. The theme of this feast is pure, 100% joy. It is a celebration of being in the presence of God at the temple. And just as God provided for those in the wilderness in the past... He has once again provided a harvest for us. It is during this feast that Solomon dedicated the temple. And it was during this feast that the Shekinah glory of God descended to the temple. Think of this feast. Huge camp out. Tailgate party. Joyous week. Laughing, singing, dancing. After the Day of Atonement, the Jewish nation is temporarily cleansed of their sin. The harvest is done. The growing season is completed. And it's time to thank God. Happens in Jerusalem. Those are the feasts. That last feast foreshadows a time in the future of the Millennial Kingdom. A time following the return of the Jewish nation to Jesus, the rapture of Gentiles, the return of everyone who's ever trusted Jesus with their lives. They will all be there. It'll be a huge celebration. It'll be a wedding supper. It'll be the greatest party we've ever seen. 
It's a time when the harvest is over, the war is over, the trumpet has sounded, and we're to be with Jesus forever. It's a time when we celebrate the millennial kingdom. So seven feasts of the Lord, seven dress rehearsals, seven appointed times, seven key events in the life of the Messiah, four have already occurred, three yet to occur. The Feast of Trumpets begins in three weeks. For us, it begins Thursday, September 21st at 11 a.m. Because we're seven hours behind Jerusalem. And it'll end Friday the 22nd at 11 a.m. It is the feast that's most associated with the rapture. Am I saying, no, I'm not a date setter. What day is the rapture going to occur? Today. Okay. The sign of Revelation 12 that we talked about last week is the day after. Okay, so what everybody's excited about or thinking about is it seems like the Feast of Trumpets is happening on Thursday into Friday. And then as soon as that's over, all of a sudden we're going to see this sign, perhaps the sign of Revelation 12. Why is that important? Well, if the prophecies of the feasts are accurate if we've interpreted them correctly, then many believe that God will remove His church from the, at the Feast of Trumpets on one of the two days. No one knows what day. The sign of Revelation 12 will follow on the very next day and would signal that the church age is ended and that it's a wake-up call for the Jewish people. In essence, the rapture is a wake-up call to Jewish people and those left behind to get ready to re-examine themselves and decide whose blood they're going to trust because the day of judgment is soon around the corner. So if the rapture of the church is on our day planner, does that change your plans at all? Amp up the way you think about sharing the message with those you've just been kind of thinking about. Maybe increase your desperation at your own time with God. Send you into a time of repentance, perhaps a time of self-examination. To make sure you've trusted Jesus and that your name is in the book of life. I mean, living like this is how believers lived in Acts and how we're supposed to be living every day of our lives. It changes everything. It changes your priorities. No one knows when Jesus is going to return. But we're supposed to live every day with the thought that you're having right now. Ready and watching. And I believe the Feast of Trumpets serves as an annual reminder a foreshadowing of a day in the future when the light of the world will penetrate the darkness, a trumpet will sound because it's the appointed time of God. And Jesus will return for his bride, will be caught up in the clouds with him. We are to stay prepared and we're to be reminded that it's later today than it's ever been in the history of humans. So every year when the fall feasts roll around, Believers around the world begin to wonder if this could be the year that Jesus comes back. It's not too different than Jewish believers who always wondered if this could be the year the Messiah comes. 
Is this going to be the year? Signs are everywhere. Timing's up to God. Our job, be ready. One day, just like band camp, trumpet's going to sound. Instantly, if you're ready. Signs are everywhere. God said to get ready. One of the ways that we are to get ready is through communion. And at Remnant, we, we take the bread and we dip it in the juice, representing his body and his blood that was shed. I talked a couple weeks ago about how a bride would take the cup, and, and accepting the cup was committing to the covenant. Jesus said that every time you take communion, you declare his return. You declare what he did on the cross until his return. As we take communion tonight, I want you to think about a couple things. One is, Jesus said in Scripture that when we do this, we are foreshadowing another day in the future when he will drink with us. We are recommitting to our covenant promise to him to trust him as our Savior. And we are acknowledging that we believe with every fiber in our body that he's coming back for us. And it could be very soon. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he he took the bread and he lifted it up and he said, this is my body. It's going to be broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He was the bread of life. The bread with no leaven. The bread who sustains people. And then he took the the wine and he lifted it up and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And whenever you drink from the cup and eat the bread, you are declaring what I've done until my return. So tonight as you take communion, let's just put it all in context. Passover lamb has come. No leaven was found in the bread. He was the first fruit resurrected. The promise of the Holy Spirit was sent to us. There will be a day when Jesus comes back for his church. There will be a day when everyone is held accountable to trust in Jesus or something else for their salvation. And at the end, there will be a massive party that we can celebrate like none we've ever celebrated before. It's the message of the feasts. That's the message of the scriptures. It's the message of the prophets. It's signs written in the heavens. It's signs all over earth. It's a revelation from God himself to his children. Let's pray. God, we come tonight and we celebrate communion. You told those who have trusted you that we're to periodically celebrate in this very specific way. You left no details out. God, for those who don't yet trust you, would you just give them a moment while we're taking communion to just sit and reflect on what we've been talking about? It's my prayer that every person surrenders to you. That every person realizes that all these signs can't be coincidental. That everything's pointing to your return and we need to be ready. And first and foremost, we're ready by trusting what you did on the cross and surrendering to you. 
So God, I pray right now that if there's those who are hesitating, who are stiff-arming you, who are pushing back, that you would break through that and that they would be aware that maybe they don't understand everything, but the one thing they know, something inside them is shouting, this is true. God, let them trust you before it's too late. And for those of us, God, who have trusted you, who have surrendered to you, who are the holders of your Holy Spirit, would you use this time to just grow us deeper, to take us to a deeper place, and to show us you in a new and fresh way as we recommit to the covenant that we promised and that you've promised us. And until you come back, God, can we celebrate communion and shout what you did on the cross and what you did for us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.